want to turn in your Bibles to Luke 19. We are going through the series in the Gospel of Luke. Luke 19 is where we find ourselves this morning. Beginning in verse 11, beginning in verse 11, through verse 27, and let me read the text, you can follow along with me. Verse 11, while they were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem and they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. So he said, a nobleman went into a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. And he called 10 of his slaves and gave them 10 minas and said to them, do business with this until I come back. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned after receiving the kingdom, he ordered that these slaves to whom he had given the money be called to him so that he might know what business they had done. The first appeared saying, Master, your minute has made 10 minutes more. And he said to him, well done, good slave, because you have been faithful in the very little things. You're to be in authority over ten cities. Second came, saying, you're minna minna master. That almost sounds like something that you'd put in the kitchen, that kind of chews food up. The minna master has made five minas. And he said to him also, and you are to be over five cities. Another came, saying, master, here's your minna, which I kept put away in a handkerchief for I was afraid of you because you are an exacting man you take up what you did not lay down and you reap what you did not sow and he said to them by your own words I will judge you you worthless slave did you know that I am an exacting man taking up what I did not lay down and reaping what I did not sow then why did you not put my money in the bank and having come I would have collected it with interest then he said to the bystanders take the minute away from him and give it to the one who has 10 minutes. And they said to him, Master, he has 10 minutes already. I tell you that everyone who has, more shall be given. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. But these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slay them in my presence. There's really two problems with vacations. The first problem with a vacation, most of you are aware of it, is when you get back from a vacation, you're so burnt out uh, and so over vacation that you're really not very good for the first week or so as you kind of get back in the, um, the swing of things. Have you seen that? Yeah, we're very familiar with that. But what I've noticed also that oftentimes before vacations, you're not that good either because you're so excited about going on vacation, your mind has a tendency to drift as you think about the exciting things that are going to come with uh, the vacation and wherever you're going. Now you say, well, Neil, what are you talking about? Well, the reason I bring this up is because that's what's going on here in the text. Notice verse 11. 
They were coming close to to Jerusalem and the disciples began to think what? They began to think that the kingdom of God, notice verse 11, was going to appear immediately. So that's the basis of why Jesus told this parable, this parable to get them back to what? The reality of really what the kingdom of God was going to be about. Okay, so they're all excited. Okay, where Jericho is just a few miles from, uh, from Jerusalem. They're thinking, we're going up to Jerusalem. It's the Passover. He is going to do it. And we're so excited. And Jesus said, now, guys, let's take a picture. I'm going to give you a picture. This little story of what, indeed, the coming of the kingdom is all about. Now, there are some, not too many similarities between their experience with Jesus then and our experience with Jesus now, but there are a few applications that we can make as we look at this parable. But the reason he's telling this is specifically found in verse 11. He says, he told him this parable because he was near Jerusalem and they were thinking, it's going to happen in just a couple of days. So he tells them this parable. So what I want to do is I want to look at this parable because it has, there are three important insights that are in this parable that apply specifically to them, but also have application to the situation where we find ourselves this morning, and I will look at it. Now, before we do that, however, as you've been, as we are reading through this parable, you said, this, this parable seems familiar. It sounds like a, where have I seen this before? And if that was going through your mind, you're a good Bible student. Because in Matthew chapter 25, you have the parable of the talents. Yes, the parable of the talents. Now you're thinking, well, is it parable? Is the parable of the talents or is, is, is it minas or talents? Is it three servants given five, two, and one, like it was in Matthew 25? Or is it like here, ten servants each given one minute? Which, well, who's right, Matthew or Luke, they're both right because they're two different times. This particular parable is given while Jesus is in Jericho. Do you notice the context? We saw that last week. Jesus is still in Jericho. He has not gone up to Jerusalem. If you turn to Matthew chapter 25, the parable of the talents is given when? He's already in Jerusalem. He's already entered in. He's already done Palm Sunday. He's getting ready. He's during that Passover week. So, two different parables, two different parables, they have the same theme, but Jesus uses different ideas, same, same, same basic thrust, but he's using different uh, items because he has a specific purpose for each of the parables. He's speaking to a different group here than he's speaking to in Matthew chapter 25, which is about perhaps a week or so later. So that's the context, and you can look at Matthew chapter 25 and see the slight differences, but it's it's the same kind of major theme. So let's take a look. The first insight we have is found in verses 12 through 15, where it tells us that the the coming of the kingdom means 
The fulfillment can be put on hold. The fulfillment can be put on hold. Notice he says, he tells, verse 12, a nobleman went on to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. Now, notice the reality of the desire. They had a desire for the kingdom of God. And what was their desire? Their desire was, we got the Messiah, (laughs) the kingdom is here, it's going to happen right now. That was what their desire was was they were hoping that being that Jesus is the Messiah the kingdom of God is going to come immediately we see that from verse 11 and also in verse 12 Jesus tells a parable that indicates that the the Messiah is going to is come but he's going and he's coming back then we see the reality of the fulfillment in verse 15 where he says, and when he returned, then, after receiving the kingdom, then he would begin to do his work. Now, as he told this parable, do you think his disciples fully understood it? No, they didn't get it. They didn't get it. Why? Well, we see their reaction to his death on Good Friday. We see the reaction to his resurrection on Sunday morning. Even after he resurrected, he was explaining to them. They kept saying, well, is it now that you're going to set up your kingdom? It wasn't until later on, after his ascension, that they finally got the picture. They finally got the picture that the kingdom of God represented two comings. We understand that. That's not a problem for us. We understand that Christ was going to come. The Messiah was going to come the first time as the suffering servant, right? And the second time he would come as the reigning king. That's not a problem. We've got the picture. Paul in the epistles calls it a mystery, the mystery of the church age. We see that whole picture now. But back then, they had a strong confidence that the kingdom of God was about to come immediately. And so, the first insight that he gives them in this parable is that the coming of the kingdom means that the fulfillment of the kingdom can be put on hold. Now, that applies to us here because what we see going on in the church nowadays is that there is an intense... Um, how can I say? There's an intense interest in the second coming of Jesus. There's an intensity that is building up in the church where people are beginning to think that what? The kingdom of God is going to appear soon. (laughs) The kingdom of God is going to appear immediately. There's that intense interest in that. That was the expectations of the first century Christians and they had Jesus. Now we had talked about this a couple of weeks ago when we looked at the the parables that he was telling in chapter 17 and I don't want to belabor this point but he is pointing out that the coming of the kingdom was going to be put on hold. Now the first century Christians during Jesus' time 
One of the reasons that they were hoping that the kingdom was going to come so that they could get rid of the Romans who had their foot on the neck of the Jewish nation. They wanted to get rid of them. They were so, they were up to here and they were hoping the Messiah would come. He would deliver them from their troubles and it would be gravy tradism and it'd be wonderful and everything would be great. And we need to be careful. Listen carefully to your pastor. We need to be careful that we don't let the difficulties of this current age sweep us up into an expectancy that the kingdom of God is right here, right now. Now you're saying, well, wait a minute, pastor, where are you going? Well, just hang in there with me. We've got about a half an hour and I'll just... Don't get up and leave just yet. This is a Calvary Chapel and I am with you 100%. But I'm making this application Why am I making this application from this parable to us? It's evident what was true for them, that the kingdom was two parts, first coming, suffering servant, second coming, reigning king. We don't have a problem with that. But the application is troubling to some of you. Now, I need to remind you of a particular scripture. And that is found in 2 Peter chapter 3. I'm going to turn there for just a moment. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day. Well, people have been saying, hey, well, 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 you know, it's been 2,000 years. You know, when are you going to come, Lord? And he says, what's your problem? It's only been two days. <laughs> it's only been two days. You see, the Lord has control of the time. Remember that old rock and roll song? I think it was back in the 60s or 70s. Time, time, time is on my side. Yes, it is. Do you remember that song? It's been going through my head. Well, guess what? Time is on his side. <laughs> he looks at time in a completely different way than we do. So first thing we see, first thing we see, is a thousand years is one day in the sight of the Lord. Right, keep that in mind. Then, here's, here's a much more important one. Verse 9. The Lord is not slow about his promise. Now, some of us are beginning to think, hey, you're awfully slow in this. Well, he said, wait, wait, wait. The Lord is not slow concerning his promise, but is patient toward you, not wishing for, here it is, any to perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now, aren't you glad, some of you are going to be very glad, that the rapture was not in 1988? You know why? Because if the rapture was in 1988, you were going through the tribulation to get saved. Didn't happen, did it? There are, now listen carefully, there are thousands of people coming to Christ every day. Thousands of people coming to Christ every day. In Asia and Africa, that's happening. And the Lord, it says here, is not wishing that any should perish. And so when the fullness of time comes, and the fullness of time comes, and when the Lord understands that this is it, 
then and only then will he determine the second coming of Christ. In the year 999, that's in the year 999, it was a terrible time in medieval Europe. It was very, very difficult. It was a horrible time to live in Western Europe in the year 999. Very, very difficult. And that difficulty combined with the change of the millennium to the first millennium to the year 1000 caused an intensity in the church where many were thinking, this is it. (laughs) Things are so bad, it's horrible. We're moving into the year 1000. Christ will come. Here we are in the year 2011. And unless I missed it, Christ didn't come. (laughs) So the first thing he says to the disciples back then, folks, 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 the kingdom of, the coming of the kingdom of God means the fulfillment can be put on hold. That has applications for them and we understand that, but it also has applications, my dear friends, for us. Amen? Amen. Good. I'm glad that we got one person agreeing with me here. (laughs) Second insight. Verses 13 through 26. And this is where he puts most of his emphasis on the coming of the kingdom. Look what he says. The coming of the kingdom means both stewardship and accountability. The coming of the kingdom means both stewardship and accountability. Notice the reality of the stewardship. Verse 13, he says... And he called ten of his slaves and he gave each one of them ten minutes and said to them, do business with this until I, came, I come back. And so he, he's giving these one minute to each one and then they are to what? Do business until he comes back. And when he comes back, there is the sense that there's going to be some sort of reckoning with what he has given them. What have they done with what he's given them? That is essentially the reality of the stewardship. They need to be about the business of the Lord using this minna. Now, a minna back then was about three months wages. Three months wages. So he gave them three months wages and said, okay, I want you to use these so that when I come back... There'll be an accountability. So they had to be a steward. They had to use the funds that he gave them to expand and enrich his kingdom. That's that's the parable. Okay, now let's take a look at the reality of accountability because when he came back, when he came back in verses 15 through 26, he began to hold them accountable to what they did. Notice First, verses 16 and 17. The first appeared and said, Master, your one minute has become what? Ten. And he said, well done. Well done. You're a good slave. You've been faithful in the very little things. And now you're going to be in charge of ten cities. Then the second one comes. Same thing. He's done five. He's made five minutes from the one minute. He says, good. Good job. You were a good steward. 
you're going to be in charge of five cities. So as they had been responsible to do business for the noblemen, there was a reward as a result of their faithfulness of being a good steward with what the Lord had given them. Not real hard to understand. However, then we have the third. He comes, and they, they don't go past. There were seven other guys, but we never get to them. Another came. He said, Master, here's your minna. I've put it away in a handkerchief. Why? He hid it. Now, in the parable of the talents, the man who had one talent, he did what with it? He buried it. Here, this guy he put it in a handkerchief. And he said, well, I did that, and here's the reason, verse 21. I was afraid of you because you're an exacting man. You take up what you do not lay down. You reap what you did not sow. Then the, the nobleman, the master, turns to him and says, by your own words, I'm going to judge you. Now, why, are gonna, why is he being judged by his own words? Because his words reveal what was in his heart. And we'll be judged by our words. Because... Uh, What you say is an expression of what's in your heart. So he said, I'm going to judge you by your very words. And then he calls him what? A worthless slave. Because he did nothing with that minna that the Lord had given. He said, well, why did, if that's true, what you say about me is true, why didn't you just take it and put it in the bank? At least I would have gotten a little bit of interest. A little bit of interest. And that's very close to what we experience here, where some of our best bank accounts are only paying half to one percent interest, but he said, at least I would have gotten something. Then he says, take the minute away and give it to the guy who has ten. And then the bystanders say, well, wait a minute, they've already got ten, why are you giving it to him? And then he tells them, I tell you, verse 26, that everyone who has, more shall be given, but the one who does not have, that's an interesting phrase, the one who does not have, even what he has, shall be taken away from him. Very interesting that Jesus says. Okay. So we see the reality of the stewardship, the reality of the accountability. Now, let's make some applications. First, the first application is the, the Lord gives to his servants with the expectation that they would, he would, they would take what he has given them and expand or enrich... The kingdom. Is that not true? That's what the idea was. And we see that with the first and the second. They took what he had given them and expanded both his riches and his kingdom. However, the third servant is seen as worthless. Why is he seen as worthless? Because he did nothing with what the Lord gave him. And then verse 26, this interesting this verse, he says, to everyone who has, the more shall be given. That's, we, don't, we don't have any problem with that. But from the one who does not have, what does that does not have mean? Because he says he's not talking about the minute there, he's talking about something else. Even what he does have shall be taken away. That's the minute. So when he says, the one who does not have, what, what is he talking about? That's, that's, that's an interesting comment. He, he, I think what he's talking about is, 
is he does not have a proper conception, a proper conception of who the noble is, who the king is. He doesn't understand. He doesn't have it. He does not have it. He's not talking about a minute. He does not have it. He doesn't have. He under. He doesn't understand who the nobleman is, why he gave the minna, and he didn't do anything with the minna, and he ends up in the camp. Listen carefully, with those in verse thirteen or verse, those in verse fourteen. Excuse me, who say we do not want this man to reign over us. He's in that camp. Okay. Now, moving on. What does it mean to do business with what the Lord has given us? What do I mean by doing business? Well, we've talked about this several times as we've gone through this particular passage uh, in this part of Luke. And we've seen that the Lord calls us to use what he has given us to do what? To expand his kingdom. So that while he is gone, waiting for the second coming, waiting for the nobleman to come back in this parable, waiting for the king to come back, we are to do what? With what he's given us. We are to use the funds that he's given us to expand the work of the local church, to expand the the work of the ministry overseas and here in in the United States to expand his kingdom. That's... You say, well, Pastor, you've spoken several times on this, and that's true. But that's what he's talking about in this particular passage. We are to be about. The coming of the kingdom is for us, and this is his major point, is for us to use that which he has given us to do what? While we're waiting for him to come back is to expand his kingdom. That's what the meaning of the coming of the kingdom is all about, at least from this particular parable. We are to use not only that which he has given us, our funds, our resources, but also our gifts. Now, the Bible tells us that when you become a Christian, you are given a gift. And the gift is for what? The gift is for the edification of the body of Christ to complete, to fulfill the kingdom in a sense that they too, being edified, will encourage and increase the king. We are to use our gifts for that purpose. You say, well, my gift is to be here on Sunday morning and to listen to you, Pastor Neil. Well, I don't know if that's a gift. I don't think you can find that gift in the Bible. And I think it's rather, it's, if you say that's your gift, just to listen to my sermons and hear this wonderful worship, if you say that's, that's what I do as a Christian, I would say that's, uh, don't be offended by that, that's a cop-out. That's a lousy excuse. Why do I say that? You're saying, well, what gives you the right to be judge and jury of my Christian life? Well, I'll tell you what, based on the authority of the Bible and my own experience as a pastor. Let me explain what I mean. Being a Christian is more, than li- is more than listening to lectures, singing a few songs, and coming to church on Sunday morning, and reading a few Bible verses, and maybe praying a little bit. 
there's more. There's more, guys. That's not what Christianity is about. Now, it's part of it, but there's a lot more. You know what Christianity is about? If you have Christian faith, you are to have what? A relationship with the living God where He, listen carefully, where He, by the power of His Holy Spirit, through the gift that He has given you, uses you to do what? To bring life, life to those around you. That's what you're supposed to do. That's what Christianity, you're connected to God so that you become a conduit for His Holy Spirit through your gifts to bring life to those around you. And when you do that, you feel His presence and you sense His joy in you. Now, my experience, dear friends, with people who just come to church and listen to my lectures or my sermons or whatever you want to call them, sing a few songs and go home. If that is the reality of who you are and that's your Christianity, I'm telling you, most likely, you're not going to make it. You're going to dry up and blow away, my friends. Because it's not just about worshiping, reading this book, and here's some principles. It's about a living relationship with the eternal, all-powerful, sovereign God who wants to touch and use you to reach others for Jesus. And that brings life. You can go to other places and hear lectures, some of them better than mine. Maybe they even have better songs. And people often do that. They get bored. And you get bored. Oh, no, I'm bored. I guess I'll go somewhere else. Christianity's not that. And then you see them. They'll go from church to church to church because they get bored. And listening to my sermons and singing a few songs, if that's all your Christianity's, I understand why you're bored. <laughs> I can understand. I'm not that good of an entertainer. I can't keep your attention. And Christianity is not about listening to my lectures and singing a few songs. You're saying, well, Pastor Neil, how do I find out my gift? How do I use my gift? Let me tell you, folks. They have these uh, things that you, you know, you fill out, answer a whole bunch of questions, and then you figure it out. And they got this, oh, your gift is that. And that, I suppose that's good. But you know what? If you've been a Christian any long time, you already know what your gift is. Don't, you know, you kind of know, don't you? How do you? What's in your heart? What causes your heart to be just a little bit? What, what is that thing? That's your gift. Where you have a heart for what's what makes you think yeah 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 that's your gift follow that follow that and you watch God by the power of His Holy Spirit the eternal creative God will use you and then you'll sense His presence you'll sense His joy so I tell you you need to be about the business doing business for the Lord. That's the first reason. The second reason is you're accountable. Notice what it was. He called them to account. When the king came back, when the nobleman came back, he, he called them to account. Okay. Put up or shut up. Let's see. Now, you remember, we, a couple of weeks ago, or maybe a few more than that, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, it talks about there's one foundation and you can build on that what? Silver, gold, precious stones. You remember that? Wood, hay, and stubble. Wood, hay, and stubble is all the stupid things we do. (laughs) 
<laughs> you know, just selfish, self-centered things. What, that, what happens in the judgment then? Now, we're not talking about judgment for salvation. We're talking about judgment for works, the bema seat. All wood, hay, and stubble gets what? Burned up. Gold, silver, precious stones. What are those things? Those are the things that we do by the power of the Holy Spirit, by faith, and God uses them. They get what? They go through the fire and we bring them in. And there is a what? Reward. That's what we see here. He's talking about the very same thing here. There's There's a stewardship that we are given in light of the second coming of Christ and we are to be responsible until he comes to do his business. Do his business. Okay. So you are going to have to stand before the Lord, my friend, Christian friend, and you're going to have to answer with what you did with that which he gave you. Mm. You're going to have to stand before the Lord and answer that at the second coming. Okay? Here's the third reason why we want to be doing business for God. Do you notice his third servant? He's called worthless. Worthless. Now, why does he call him worthless? That's an interesting question. In James chapter 2, verse 14, many people don't like the book of James. And chapter 2, verse 14 is a good reason why they don't like it. You know what chapter 2, verse 14 says? What good does it, my friend, if a person says that he has faith and has not works? Can that kind of faith save him? And the answer implied by the way it's asked is what? No. Let's go there. Here's an expanded translation. If a person says that he has faith, can that kind of faith which has no works, which is phony faith, save him? And the answer is no. If your belief in Jesus doesn't produce Christian works, which is doing business for the Lord, that's what we're talking about. He says, James chapter 2, verse 14 says, you have phony faith. (laughs) You don't have the real stuff and it's not going to get you through. Is that not what James chapter 2, 14 is saying? Yes, it is. And he goes on in verse 19, he says, guess what? Even the demons believe. They believe in God. But guess what? There ain't no demons going to heaven. And so if your belief is of the type where the demons, well, yeah, I believe in God. I believe the Bible. I believe in, you know, I believe in Jesus. But that belief hasn't touched your heart. It's more of just a cerebral, I believe, like you believe in George Washington or President Lincoln or some other historic figure. If your faith is that, the element of your faith, James chapter 2 verse 14 says, you ain't got it. You are like the third servant. You're worthless. You, you don't have it. You're not going. You didn't make the cut. <laughs> How else can I say it? Let's not fool ourselves, dear friends, in thinking that we're in the kingdom when reality, like this third worthless servant, 
who had not the right concept of who his nobleman was and did nothing with what he gave him, let's not fool ourselves thinking that we're in the kingdom when in fact we're with the folks in verse 14 who are saying outwardly, I want nothing to do with this man. That's why a lot of people don't like the book of James. James puts the fat on the fire and it sizzles. Okay. Coming of the kingdom means fulfillment can be put on hold. The fulfillment of can be put on hold, but it also can mean both stewardship and accountability. We are to be about the Lord's business until he comes again. We're to use that which he gives us to expand his kingdom. Number three, the coming of the kingdom means rejection and judgment. Rejection and judgment. Verse 14, some of the citizens hated him, sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. Now what Jesus is doing is he's using this parable to connect people with something that would happen fairly regular during regularly during the Roman times. This is the way it went with Rome. If a particular person had some influence and he wanted to be a ruler or a procreator or a governor of his particular area, he would have to do what? He'd have to take a lot of money <laughs> and his influence and travel to Rome. And there he would over a period of time, try to convince Caesar to give him responsibility over this kingdom back wherever he was. So he would travel to Rome and receive the kingdom. Then when he received the kingdom, he would come back to wherever he wanted to be king and he would have the kingdom. He would be the king. Okay, that's the point. Now, at the same time, however... If you were citizens of that city or that area and you did not want that man, you could put a delegation together and send them to where? To Rome. And they would bring some money and some influence and try to say, we don't want this guy. He's a bum. Don't let him be the governor. That's what, just, that's what Jesus has used. He's using the common practice that was back then to bring in the thought of what he's saying. So we have the reality of the rejection because they sent a delegation back to Rome saying, we don't want this guy. That's what happened in the parable. That's what happened back then. Do you remember the story just a few, few days after this? Jesus was arrested and Pilate comes and says to the Jewish nation and the Jewish leaders, what do you want to do with me? Do with this man who calls himself the king of the Jews? And they said, crucify him, get rid of him. We want Barabbas. We don't want this man to rule over us. And that's exactly what happened then. And even now, that's what happens now. We tell people about Jesus and they, what, what do they say? They say, um, uh, I'm the captain of my ship and the ruler of my faith and I don't want this man to rule over me. And so we have the reality of the rejection. Then we have the reality of the judgment. Verse 27. But these enemies of mine, the parable says, the nobleman speaks, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slay them in my presence. 
Why did Jesus say that? Because just imagine, back in the first century Rome, this guy goes to Rome, he gets the kingdom. (laughs) When he comes back, what is he going to do to those guys who sent the delegation to say, ah, don't give it to him. (laughs) When he gets back home, there's going to be a payment to be made. That's the point Jesus is making. And when the Jews rejected their Messiah, there was a payment came. And the payment came when? 70 AD. Rome burned Jerusalem, destroyed the temple. Hundreds of thousands of people were killed. The Jews were scattered throughout the then known world. We see the results. And then we're going to see the results at the second coming of Christ, won't we? Many will stand before Christ at the great white throne judgment and will be found wanting, having rejected him, having not their names written in the book of life, and they will be cast into the second death. The coming of the kingdom means there will be those who will say, no, I do not want this man to rule over me, and as a result, they will come under the judgment of God. You can't escape that fact. That's what the Bible teaches. Okay. Now, you're at this point, you're saying, Pastor Neil, have you kind of departed from the fact that maybe you're thinking that Christ isn't going to come? Uh, no, I haven't. <laughs> uh, but I have to say to you guys, I didn't write the Bible. Okay? <laughs> I didn't write this passage. I didn't put this passage here just a few verses away from chapter 17, verses 22 through 37, which we talked about a couple of weeks ago. I didn't put those passages together, so stop blaming me. I just teach the Bible. And what this passage is teaching is what I said. The coming of the kingdom can represent that the fulfillment can be put on hold. That applies to the first century and also has some applications to us, does it not? Yes, it does. It also teaches that the coming of the kingdom involves both stewardship and accountability. That's what it teaches. And it teaches the coming of the kingdom also means rejection and the judgment of God upon those. And what we are to be about is we are to be about not to let the intensity of the moment and the time and the disagreement we have with our particular governmental structure or the taxes or anything else drive us to a place where we become ineffective for the kingdom because primarily our job as the kingdom keepers here on this earth is to use that which God has given us to expand his kingdom until he comes and to make it sure that as few as possible come under the judgment of God. That's the call he makes to us, to do business until he comes with the understanding that he sets the time. And when the fullness of the numbers comes in, and Christ returns, we'll say, he was right on time. Right on time. Not your time, not my time, but 
his time. And with that in mind, I'll remind you that I didn't write this passage. I'm, I believe that we are in very special times. I really believe it. But this passage forces me to tell you what the Bible says. And have you noticed that oftentimes what the Bible says goes directly against what you'd like to happen? Well, there's a, set, there's a saying that goes along with that. Tough noogies. <laughs> what can I say? Tough noogies. Hear the parable of the menace. Because it has application to you and it has applications to me. Amen? Let's pray. Father, sometimes you tell us things that we don't want to hear. We don't want to hear that the coming of the kingdom had been put on hold. Sometimes for many years that we don't understand. We don't understand that, but we know time is in your hands. Sometimes we get tired. We wonder to you. But you've called us to stewardship. You've called us to do business for you until you come. You've called us to help that there'll be as few people as possible that will reject Christ and come under the judgment of God. May your parable that you spoke to your friends way, way back in the first century touch our hearts as hopefully later on it touched their hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.